You're listening to the Story Connective. This episode is the first in a series of stories about people and projects on the island of Maui. Maui's community is at a historical moment of transition and choice. We share with you the history of Maui's past to better understand the present and the future. Welcome to the Story Connective. I'm Rebecca Rhapsody. And I'm Loxley Clovis. The Story Connective is dedicated to documenting and sharing inspiring stories of possibility, resilience, and cooperation. This episode is a little special in that we aren't interviewing anyone for a story. Instead, we will be telling you the history of a place. It's the story of the island where I was born and grew up, Maui, Hawaii. Maui is one of the most beautiful and isolated places on the planet. Visited and loved by travelers from all over the world, there is something special about this island. It's more than its luscious landscapes and beaches, though those are beautiful. It's the way this island feels. It's the sense of aloha that permeates the air, the soil, the trees. It's the poignancy of everything being so interrelated and life so precious. For me... Maui is magical. It fills my soul, and it's the home of my heart. The island of Maui is at a crossroads. Industrial sugarcane production on Maui has come to an end after 150 years, and the future of tens of thousands of acres of land and billions of gallons of this island's fresh water is now in limbo. What will be grown and built during this transition will impact Maui's future over the coming centuries. The possibilities are inspiring. The people of the Maui community are paying attention to what is being planned, what is being said, what is going unsaid, and what is being done on behalf of the future of this precious island. The Story Connective is producing a series of episodes that will take you on a journey, introducing you to the voices that envision a resilient and thriving Maui. In this first episode of the series, We take an in-depth look at Maui's past, from its mythic origins and indigenous ways of life, through colonization, and finally to its modern incarnation. If we can better understand what Maui looked like before sugar became such a big force on the island, we may discover insights about what Maui could look like now that sugar is no longer. Of all the Hawaiian islands, Maui has the special honor of being named after a mythic hero whose stories have been sung throughout Polynesia. Maui was a demigod, a miracle maker, and a trickster. There are many stories of Maui the hero and his deeds. One such story concerns the creation of the Hawaiian islands. Maui was in a canoe with his brothers, paddling out to sea. They were going fishing. It's the first time that Maui had been allowed in a canoe with his brothers to go fishing for quite some time, because Maui was a trickster, and he'd done one trick too many, and his brothers just weren't interested. But they hadn't been able to catch fish for a couple of days, and they didn't know what to do. And Maui had an idea. So... There they were, paddling out to sea, farther and farther, because when the brothers got to their normal fishing spot, Maui said, Nope, 
we have to go farther. This isn't going to catch the fish that we need to catch today. So they paddled out and paddled and paddled. They paddled for like three days. And finally, when they're out in the middle of nowhere with no land around them, Maui said, here, this will do. And he took out his fish hook. It was a really special fish hook. Different stories say he got it in different ways. I like the way that Queen Liliuokalani, the last queen of Hawaii, says in what is called the family chant that she translated to English. It goes like this. Go hence to your father, Maui. Tis there you find line and hook. This is the hook made fast to the heavens. Manaya Kalani, tis called. When the hook catches land, it brings the old seas together. Bring hither the large alae, the bird of Hina. Maui took out this special fishing hook, and he dropped it over the side of the canoe where it floated down deeper into the water. And then it caught something. The line began to pull, and Maui began to reel in this big fish. And he yelled at his brothers, start to paddle. So his brothers started to paddle, and they paddled as hard as they could and as fast as they could, pulling with Maui this large fish. And they paddled and they paddled, and Maui said, don't look behind you, just keep paddling. If you look behind you, we'll lose it. And so they paddled and paddled, and it was such an enormous fish. And the brothers, they got curious. How big could this fish possibly be to be putting up such a fight? And one of them turned around. When he did, the lion broke, and it was over. And behind Maui wasn't any fish, but big bumps of land. And Maui said, well, I meant to bring up a continent, but I guess these islands will have to do. And those islands are the Hawaiian Islands. For millennia, the Hawaiian islands were isolated from the rest of the world. Plants and animal species began to arrive onto these actively volcanic lands millions of years ago, either by wave, by wind, or by wing. And colorful birds, such as the Hawaiian honeycreepers, evolved here to diversify into dozens of unique varieties. Today, Hawaii is home to the highest concentration of plants and animals found nowhere else on the earth species known as endemic species. For millennia, birds ruled these lands. And then, people arrived. Many centuries ago, people from Western Pacific Islands set forth eastward on an epic journey thousands of kilometers long in voyaging canoes. 
experts at reading the stars and the ocean and the waves and wayfinding. These explorers were the astronauts of their time, adeptly traveling vast oceanic distances. They became the first humans to happen upon the most remote island chain on planet Earth, the Hawaiian Islands. It was there they found lush islands covered from coast to coast with abundant, biologically diverse forests. The seafaring people also carried with them a handful of purposeful animal species and plants, plants brought from their island homes, such as coconut, sweet potato, banana. These crops today are referred to as the canoe plants. Hawaii's people developed a very specific way of creating land districts. Each of the Hawaiian islands were divided into wedge-shaped sections called ahupua'a, and each ahupua'a ran from the top of the mountain to the sea, following the natural boundaries of the geographical features of the watershed. Each ahupua'a, from the forested mountainsides to the lowland fields, to the ocean and the coral gardens beyond the shore, contained all the resources and food each resident family needed to live comfortably. Upland areas remained forested. Here, people could find foods and medicines, crafting materials, and where tall, thick koa trees grew for use as seafaring canoes. These intact forest ecosystems also ensured that rain kept falling, streams kept flowing, and the tree roots prevented erosion of the steep slopes. The fertile valley floor of the islands were cultivated as agricultural lands, where they grew a great diversity of crops, particularly kalo, known in English as taro, which is the staple food of Hawaiians. Large streams that emptied into calm bays were shaped into fish ponds for healthy seafood cultivation. Inland, upland, and seashore villages would trade with each other for food crops, house materials, and seafood within their ahupua'a districts. Specialized knowledge and resources, particular to a small area, were also shared among the different ahupua'a districts. The size of each ahupua'a depended on the natural fertility and abundance of the land, with poorer agricultural regions made into larger ahupua'a to compensate. The local land supervisor, known as Konohiki, had the responsibility of ensuring his ahupua'a stayed productive. To maintain the sustainability of their ahupua'a, Native Hawaiians practiced the values of aloha, love and respect, laulima, cooperation, and malama, stewardship, which resulted in a desirable pono, balance and alignment. Stewardship of the land and its resources was formalized and enforced through the kapu system, a system which identifies the sacred with certain protocols on how to interact with the sacred. A priestly class enforced the kapu system, which placed restrictions on fishing certain species during their reproductive seasons, on gathering and replacing certain plants, on aspects of social interactions, and in this way, the community maintained a sustainable lifestyle for generations. Through sharing resources, and constantly working within the rhythms of their natural environment, Hawaiians enjoyed abundance and a high-quality lifestyle with ample leisure time for recreation. It also allowed for a high level of artistic achievement. Many crafts, including Hawaiian kapa fabrics and featherwork weavings, 
were at the pinnacle of artistic achievement in the Pacific. In addition to fine crafts, Hawaiians participated in surfing, martial arts, sports, healing arts, dancing, chanting, creating rich traditions that continue to this day. In the world's most remote island chain, 3,000 kilometers away from the nearest continent, the Ahupua'a Natural Land Divisions were the solution to making the Hawaiian archipelago not only self-sufficient, but also enormously abundant, allowing many hundreds of thousands of people to thrive in Hawaii for centuries. In their biologically diverse Ahupua'a, Hawaiians grew ko, known in English as sugarcane, in limited quantities on small personal plots. However, sugarcane's role in Hawaii changed dramatically after Western contact. The first Westerner, an Englishman named Captain James Cook, made contact with the Hawaiian Islands in 1778 during his voyage of the Pacific Ocean and began what would become frequent trading between Hawaiians and Westerners. Soon after stories of these islands reached the United States, American missionaries began to colonize the islands and preach Christianity. These missionaries started to grow and trade sugarcane to support their missions, as well as to give employment to their students. This trend continued as descendants of the first American missionaries in Hawaii built businesses out of their sugarcane plantations. In 1835, missionary descendants William Ladd and Peter Brinsmaid, along with William Northey Hooper, an American from a family of shipmasters and merchants, formed Ladd and Company, Hawaii's first large-scale commercial sugarcane plantation and mill. Their plantation was the beginning of what would become Hawaii's largest industry, sugar. In 1836, Ladd and Company shipped thousands of kilos of sugar and molasses to the United States. U.S. demand for sugar increased during the California Gold Rush and later during the U.S. Civil War, as steamships provided rapid transportation of the product from the islands. By the 1840s, sugarcane plantations began to replace the self-sustaining, biologically diverse, and interdependent Hawaiian ahupua'a systems. Native Hawaiian people experienced dramatic changes after Western contact. Different islands had separate rulers throughout the history of pre-Western contact Hawaii. With the introduction of rifles and cannons, as well as Western military advisors, Kamehameha I consolidated the power of the Hawaiian monarchy under a single ruler after a series of inter-island wars. King Kamehameha I won each war with gunpowder weapons and advice from Westerners Isaac Davis and John Young. Western introduced diseases such as smallpox also decimated the indigenous population. During the 19th century, large numbers of people came from abroad and were brought to the islands by the sugarcane companies to work on the plantations. 
facing a declining Hawaiian society and increased pressure from persuasive missionaries who wanted to make Hawaii a Christian nation, as well as pressure from powerful plantation owners who wanted land reform, King Kamehameha III followed the advice of Americans and introduced Western law and the Western concept of property to the islands in order to manage Hawaiian lands. These advisors included Americans William Richards and Garrett P. Judd. Assimilating a Western model, King Kamehameha III enacted the 1840 Constitution of the Kingdom of Hawaii, establishing executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government, branches that became occupied by Americans, such as William Little Lee, who understood the potential influence of these branches over land ownership. King Kamehameha III and his chiefs subsequently formed a land commission, which enacted a series of laws that officially established the concept of private land ownership to the islands for the first time. In 1848, a law known as the Great Mahele divided Hawaii into thirds, one-third for the king, one-third for the chiefs, one-third for the commoners, such as fishermen, farmers, and craftsmen. Two years later, following advice from the Western plantation elite, the Alien Land Ownership Act was passed in July of 1850. This act allowed foreigners to own land for the first time in the Kingdom of Hawaii. A month later that same year, the Kuleana Act of August 1850 allotted ownership of land to anyone, including Hawaiian inhabitants, who submitted documentation of their claims to a parcel of land. The ultimate result of the Alien Land Ownership and Kuleana Acts was that foreigners, particularly plantation owners, made rich from the sugar trade and who were familiar with the value of land ownership, acquired enormous tracts of land from the Kingdom of Hawaii. Hawaiians have the value of aloha aina, which is the responsibility to deeply love and care for the land as they do with any flesh and blood family member. Thus, the concept of land ownership was foreign to most Hawaiian people, and since many Hawaiian commoners could not read or understand Western legalese, most Hawaiians never filed official claims for the land they had lived and farmed on for generations, resulting in significantly less Hawaiian lands in Hawaiian hands. Thus, the series of Western laws plowed the way and accelerated the American sugar plantation's overthrow of Hawaiian ahupua'a culture in the Kingdom of Hawaii.
this series of events further entrenched the dominance of the sugarcane market economy on the islands. The new market was tightly controlled by descendants of American missionaries and Western businessmen, and concentrated in a handful of powerful plantation corporations forming an oligarchy known in Hawaii as the Big Five. They are Alexander and Baldwin Incorporated, Castle and Cook, Sea Brewer and Company, American Factors, and Theo H. Davies and Company, and their respective subsidiaries. Hawaii's landscape was drastically altered by sugar plantation owners, as sugarcane crops require large amounts of water to grow. During the second half of the 19th century, East Maui Irrigation Company, a subsidiary of Alexander and Baldwin, also known as AMB, dug a series of ditches that diverted hundreds of millions of gallons per day of fresh rainwater from more than 100 streams on Maui. These diversions took water from traditional ahupua'a to the enormously thirsty sugar plantations in the drier central valley of the island. Since the sugar refining mills required burning wood to power them, many trees were chopped down from the once kapu forests of the mountain slopes. As big agriculture grew, large-scale livestock grazing was introduced and also took its toll on native habitats. Hawaii's forests, which once covered the islands from coast to coast, were decimated and today only a tiny percent of old-growth forests remain. As the sugarcane grew, so did the earnings coming in from its sales abroad. Examining their sugarcane earnings, the sugar barons, all of them from American and European families, discovered a leech on their profits. Since the big five plantation corporations were founded and based in the Kingdom of Hawaii, their owners felt burdened by the heavy tariffs placed on their sugar from the main consumer of their product, the United States, a separate foreign nation. In 1875, the Kingdom of Hawaii, with its legislative and judicial branches thoroughly packed with Western sugar interests, secured a so-called free trade agreement known as the Reciprocity Treaty, which allowed Hawaii to sell sugar to the United States without paying duties or taxes. The U.S. military, in return, gained lands in the area known as Pu'uloa for the strategically positioned Pearl Harbor Naval Base when the treaty was renewed. It was a key military position that would prove important for United States domination of the Pacific over its rivals. This treaty greatly increased the plantation profits of the Big Five sugar oligarchy. But the treaty only temporarily solved the tariff issue. Near the end of the 19th century, in order to help U.S. grown sugar compete with the pricing of Hawaiian sugar, the U.S. government made law the 1890 McKinley Tariff Act, 
which raised tariffs significantly on imports, dealing a devastating blow to the earnings of the big five sugar producers in Hawaii. Concerned about the effect on sugar profits resulting from higher U.S. tariffs, the oligarchy took action. On January 17, 1893, a coalition of small groups led by American missionary descendants and Western plantation owners of the Big Five overthrew the native Hawaiian monarchy. They swiftly began moving their newly formed Republic of Hawaii towards annexation with the United States. Annexation would make Hawaii a U.S. territory and solidify Pearl Harbor's protection for the U.S.-tied plantation elites from masses of local Hawaiian sovereignty advocates. It would also reopen untariffed trade routes to Hawaii's largest consumer market, the United States allowing enormous profits to flow yet again to the sugar baron owners of the Big Five. This prompted tens of thousands of Hawaiians to sign a petition to the United States opposing annexation. The Queen of Hawaii, Billy Uokalani, filed an official protest against annexation to Washington, D.C., and Hawaii Princess Ka'iolani traveled to the United States to publicly voice her opposition to annexation and even met with U.S. President Grover Cleveland about the matter. All efforts were to no avail. On July 7, 1898, despite overwhelming opposition from the native population, Hawaii was annexed and became a territory of the United States. Tariffs gone, sugarcane plantations in Hawaii expanded during its period as a U.S. territory. In addition to sugar industry expansion, some of the Big Five corporations diversified and came to dominate related industries, including transportation, banking, and real estate. In 1903, referring to the highly concentrated economic and political power of the Big Five Sugarcane Corporations. Attorney General of Hawaii, Edmund Pearson Dole, remarked, There is a government in this territory which is centralized to an extent unknown in the United States, and probably almost as centralized as it was in France under Louis Fourteenth. Additional large single-crop plantations were introduced as more Americans also sought to make a fortune on these islands. American industrialist James D. Dole started large pineapple plantations in Hawaii at the turn of the century. The intense marketing of his pineapple company linked this fruit and Hawaii in the minds of consumers everywhere. Later in the 20th century, the islands saw the introduction of petrochemical inputs such as artificial fertilizer and herbicides into its massive industrial monoculture plantations. And after World War II, Hawaii officially became a U.S. state. 
In the second half of the 20th century, as barriers to global trade continued to dissolve due to so-called international free trade agreements, sugarcane production began to steadily decline. The trade agreements opened the door for multinational corporations to use labor in authoritarian countries prone to busting unions that organized for better working conditions and living wages. Thus, sugarcane prices began to decline on the world market and Hawaiian sugar producers found it harder and harder to compete. By the end of the 20th century, the once completely self-sufficient island chain was importing roughly 90% of its goods, including its food supply. Today, one Big Five corporation, founded by sugar-growing descendants of American missionaries a century and a half ago, A&B, has essentially become a major real estate firm. As of 2017, it is one of the largest companies in the United States, and its stocks are traded on the New York Stock Exchange, with the vast majority of its profits linked to real estate in Hawaii, as well as the continental United States. A&B's sugar operation, Hawaiian Commercial and Sugar Company, known as HCNS, now a relatively small subsidiary of the A&B Mega Corporation, has steadily been producing less sugar and losing money for years. On January 6, 2016, HCNS announced that it was halting the last Hawaiian sugarcane operation, effectively laying off nearly 700 employees and leaving around 36,000 acres and tens of billions of gallons of fresh water on Maui in limbo. Maui is at a crossroads. Sugarcane interests have shaped this island for over 140 years. The nickname of Maui is the Valley Isle, due to one of its most notable geographical features, its large central valley. For decades, as people have flown over this island, they have borne witness to acre after acre of sugarcane fields covering Maui's expansive central valley. Now that Maui's last sugarcane operation has closed down, a void has been left in Maui's land, economy, and psyche. Something is going to fill that void. What that something is has not yet come. There is a huge opportunity for something new to happen on Maui, that will shape the landscape and culture for the coming centuries. A and B and HCNS claim that they are committed to continuing what they refer to as diversified agriculture on their huge tracts of land in Maui's Valley. Whether or not A and B's stated plan for the valley will make those who call Maui home more resilient and healthier is a question in the minds of many. As previously mentioned, today, Hawaii relies on 90% imports, which includes its food supply. Rising global crises, such as increasing pollution, unstable weather patterns, unpredictable economies, and political volatility, makes Hawaii vulnerable. At the same time, Hawaii has been experiencing a growing cultural renaissance. After the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii, the Hawaiian language was banned by the Republic of Hawaii in 1896, and Hawaiian cultural practices generally were repressed. Over the past several decades, 
Hawaii has witnessed the reemergence of its language, songs, dances, fine arts, the rediscovery of its sophisticated ocean navigation techniques, and the resurgence of its ahupua'a farms. With its year-round growing season, enormous diversity of microclimates, and the world's largest number of rare endangered species, Hawaii is an extremely unique place. There is potential for Maui to combine the wisdom of the past with modern-day practices and look towards the needs of the future to become an example to the world of how to transition to a truly sustainable, responsible, and profitable agricultural model. What happens now will be written in history books for years to come. This is a time to explore the options available for a thriving, resilient future. Over the coming months, the Story Connective will bring you the voices of the affected stakeholders, the people, groups, organizations, and members at the grassroots of this historic moment on Maui. The voices of modern Ahupua'a Kalo and canoe crop farmers, native habitat restorers, community organizers, educators, storytellers, organic gardeners, water protectors, regenerative agriculturalists in the Korean natural farming and permaculture movements, and more. We hope to give a voice to the vision of a possible thriving and regenerative Maui that is in alignment with the practiced Hawaiian values of aloha, laulima, and malama. Love and respect, cooperation, and stewardship, which result in a desirable pono, balance and alignment of all life. Stay tuned to The Story Connective. This has been a Story Connective production by Rebecca Rhapsody and Loxley Clovis. We put a lot of effort into researching and writing this concise history of Hawaii. We went to great lengths to gather accurate information from multiple sources. In order to get this history to fit within the focused scope of this project, we had to make some difficult editorial decisions. If you are interested in learning more about important events in the history of Hawaii, you can find a link to our extensive bibliography for this podcast on our website at storyconnective.org. If you found value in this story and support Story Connective's 501c3 mission and vision of bringing stories of resilience and possibilities to the world, there are many ways you can contribute. Share this story with friends, family, co-workers. Subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channels. Like us on Facebook. Like Rebecca Rhapsody on Instagram. Story Connected is 100% listener and viewer supported. Become a member of our crowdfunding campaign that financially supports this project on Patreon, where for as little as $1 a month, you'll become part of the Story Connective's inner community, get special updates about what we're up to, and many more special perks. Learn more at patreon.com slash storyconnective. Audio recording and production by Loxley Clovis. Intro song is Which That Is This by Dr. Turtle. Ukulele of Aloha Oi, performed by Pomit Sai. Outro ukulele, performed by Rebecca Rhapsody. Ocean Waves and Wind by Binaural Soundscapes. And Bird Songs, provided by Hawaii Conservation Alliance. All under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Chant performed by Sam Ohugon III, used with permission. Special thanks to Joe and Pat Nero and Rasa, and our fiscal sponsor, Elsa, a nonprofit committed to empowering individuals to take care of the future. Learn more 
allaboutelsa at E-L-L-S-S-A dot O-R-G. The purpose of this audio interview is for nonprofit education, news, and commentary. This story is released under the Attribution Share Alike Creative Commons license. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you have a beautiful day.